My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. lessons to me was how significant OCAP's name is. When OCAP's name was on something, city staff were really deeply concerned about it. And the power of collective organizing when it's a well-known group that does direct action or when it's like OCAP that has that long-standing reputation can mean so much. That's the voice of A.J. Withers, today's guest on Talking Radical Radio. This show brings you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are involved in many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening can strengthen all of our efforts to change the world. Withers has been involved in grassroots political work since the late 1990s, initially environmentalism and then in the global justice movement. Even in that moment, Withers was conscious of some of the weaknesses of the global justice movement that were soon to become widely discussed, and was looking for other ways to fight for transformative change. Not long after, they found a political home in one of Ontario's best-known grassroots groups, the Ontario Coalition Against Poverty. OCAP has combined militant mass mobilization in support of demands around things like raising social assistance rates and housing for all, with the use of direct action to win concrete gains for individual people living in poverty. Withers was active in OCAP for the next two decades. In recent years, Withers has also engaged in political writing. Their most recent book, and the focus of today's episode, is called Fight to Win, Inside Poor People's Organizing, published by Fernwood in 2021. It draws on both Withers' own experiences in the group, as well as other research, to tell the stories of and draw lessons from four of OCAP's key campaigns over the years related to homelessness. Withers had a couple of different motivations for writing the book. One is that, as an experienced organizer, for a long time they had been quite dissatisfied with most writing about organizing coming out of contemporary movements. This was largely because such writing often tries to do two things that pull it in very different directions. It tries to describe and perhaps analyze the organizing work, which requires a willingness to talk about mistakes and problems, but it also tries to generate enthusiasm and draw people into the movement in general or specific organizations, which encourages a more celebratory orientation. As well, Withers has seen lots of groups in lots of places over the last 20 years attempt to model themselves on OCAP but far too many of them have foundered because of the ways in which they have drawn lessons from the Toronto-based group. Far too many have applied the model as a, quote, cookie cutter, when the beauty of OCAP, historically, has been its ability to respond to the community that it's in, end quote. In Fight to Win, Withers attempts to look at OCAP's work in a more nuanced way to, quote, actually give meaningful lessons about organizing, end quote that will be useful both to experienced organizers looking to apply them in other contexts, and also to people newer to grassroots politics. The book starts out by examining a short but highly successful fight in 2017 in opposition to a neighborhood business improvement area in Toronto that was employing a private security guard to harass homeless people in the local park. Another chapter looks at an emergency housing benefit meant to prevent homelessness that was discriminating against disabled people and families. 
The group largely approached that struggle through its direct action casework and experienced a mix of success and failure. Another chapter focuses on OCAP's many campaigns related to pushing for improvements in the city's emergency shelter system, with particular attention to the many different strategies employed by the city to demobilize the struggle. And the book concludes with a look at encampment organizing in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. Along the way, the book takes up many important ideas. For instance, it critically examines the Housing First policy, touted by progressives and implemented in many places across Canada, and the ways in which Housing First's real-world impacts are, quote, actually pretty terrible, end quote. The book also looks at the direct action casework tactic in some detail, and it covers the crucial role of epistemic violence, that is, how deeply central the denial of the experiences and knowledge of poor people and grassroots organizers is to efforts to maintain the brutal systemic violence to which poor people are constantly subjected. I speak with Withers about OCAP and about fight to win inside poor people's organizing. My name is AJ Withers, and I am based in Tecoronto, the traditional territories of the Anishinaabek, Haudenosaunee, Chippewa, and Wendat. And I am a longtime anti-poverty organizer and author of a few books, the most recent Fight to Win Inside Poor People's Organizing. That book is about anti-poverty organizing, mostly around homelessness and how the government works and homelessness policy. I began organizing in the late 90s. I was living in Victoria and I started out doing environmental organizing and I moved to Toronto in 99 and started doing anti-globalization as we called it then, now called global justice organizing and became quite critical of that kind of organizing. Many of the critiques that are now quite well known of that kind of organizing at the time I had and saw the Ontario Coalition Against Poverty as a long-standing organization that was intergenerational and very grounded in the community. And so I joined that group and organized with that group for about 20 years. The Ontario Coalition Against Poverty was founded in 1990. It came out of a coalition around the 1989 election that was demanding a raise in social assistance rates. And it always was a direct action anti-poverty organization, an anti-capitalist organization. And it really early on developed an organizing model that has two arms of organizing. One is mass mobilizing, bringing as many people out as possible and demanding fundamental social change. And that has largely been around raising social assistance rates and housing for all or shelter for all. So in the interim, that's often been around emergency shelter beds, but in the long term around more housing for all. And also recognizes that we can't call on people to come out without dealing with people's immediate material needs. And so we do direct action casework which is a dial of organizing that if there's an injustice done to an individual would work to respond to that injustice in extra legal means. So if someone doesn't get their welfare check, we would start out by sending a letter to the supervisor of the welfare office. And if that didn't work, we would go down to the welfare office with the group and demand a meeting and that that person get their check. 
And that's been a really effective mechanism for not only getting people what they need, but also for showing people that when poor people come together, they can win. And the city, which manages welfare in Ontario, in the year around 2000, issued a letter saying that if you get a letter from OCAP that you need to put it at the top of the pile because we're a problem and they didn't want us in their offices. And so since then, the amount of direct action casework that we've done has been far less. Historically, we've also done direct action casework around landlord-tenant issues, sometimes businesses and immigration, but primarily it's been around social assistance. But those two things together have been quite effective as an organizing model in terms of building power in the community and at the base. So why did you decide to write this book? I have been organizing for a long time and quite a while ago, I really felt like I stopped learning from contemporary texts that were coming out of movements and took me a long time to be able to articulate why that's the case. And it's really because Contemporary movement texts are doing two things that are competing against each other. So people are both trying to describe their organizing work while also trying to bring people into their organizations and therefore are often describing the groups that they want to be in as much as the groups that they're in, if not more so. So for people that have been around for a long time, it becomes quite hollow quite quickly. And one example that I find particularly frustrating is the line, take leadership from directly affected communities, which of course, of course that should happen. And that lines in kind of every book and everyone says that they do it and almost no one actually grapples with the complexity of what that means and how people sometimes like leadership shop or use that in really problematic ways. And those are the things that we really grapple with in organizing and how building relationships is actually so important in order to take leadership. And those are the things that I want to read about. And they're not in most organizing books because those books aren't dealing with the complexities of organizing because they just kind of want to bring people into the movement and get people excited. And with talking about OCAP, it's also been an ongoing frustration of mine that there's many groups that have modeled themselves off of the OCAP model. And for the last 20 years, I've just watched these groups sort of come up and many of them die and them sort of take the wrong lessons from OCAP and just take the OCAP model and apply it as a cookie cutter when the beauty of OCAP historically has been its ability to respond to the community that it's in. So you can't just apply the OCAP model somewhere else to a different community. So I thought that looking at OCAP's work in a shorter time period in a much more nuanced way would help actually give meaningful lessons about organizing for folks who are organizers who have been organizing for a long time and hopefully be a useful tool both for new people and also for folks who are like me who just feel like there's not a lot about contemporary organizing text that engages about organizing. There's a lot that engages us politically, but not actually with the tools around organizing. Give listeners an overview of what you talk about in the book. OCAP does so many things. So I narrowed it down in the book to its work on homelessness 
and I look at a few specific campaigns. The first one is a really short fight that we take on around public space in a public park where private business interests have hired a private security guard to kick homeless people out of the park. We fought and won that campaign really quickly. I really love that story because it's really about the fight for the city. And also it fundamentally changed how I understand organizing because the way that we look at how we win is from our experience and our perspectives. And then me going through Freedom of Information Act requests discovers that we won in a really different way than we understood that we won. And I also examine a housing benefit, an emergency housing benefit that was discriminating against disabled folks and families. And it's supposed to be to prevent homelessness, but was really inept at doing that in a lot of ways. And our struggle largely using direct action casework to fight to change that benefit and the ways that we were successful in doing that and the ways that we weren't successful in doing that, how we, like a lot of campaigns, won a lot and then weren't able to win the finer print. And I look extensively at Housing First, which is the national housing policy in Canada, has been really adopted. And it sounds really good, Housing First, obviously. That's a great slogan, but as a policy is actually pretty terrible and ensures misery and at least in cities with housing crises, ensures ongoing perpetual homelessness. So I examine how that policy has failed in Toronto, as well as how the organization that promotes that policy has worked with the city to undermine community organizing and try and think through how we can really grapple with groups like this, like really sort of professionalized NGOs that undermine grassroots organizing. And I look at our campaign for shelter and a bunch of different stories of what's happened there and think through the many different, the 20 different demobilization tactics that the city used against us in this short period of time and identify them as a way of being able to understand how the government works against us in order to be able to more strategically organize back against them. And then I end the book looking at the encampment organizing during COVID. Encampments have sprung up all around North America. Encampments have been here for decades and decades and decades, but what's new is their visibility and the public support, as well as the public vilification. So I explore the many forms of organizing around encampments as the book ends. And maybe pick one of those struggles and talk about it in a bit more detail. I'll talk about St. James Park. This guy, Neil, calls the OCAP office. He's unhoused and he's hanging out in a gazebo and being harassed by a security guard and doesn't think he should have to leave the gazebo. And so he calls us while this interaction is happening. There's not a lot in that moment that we can particularly do. But while it's happening, I call the St. Lawrence Market Neighborhood Business Improvement Area, or what I'll just call the BIA, because they're the ones that have hired the security guard. And shortly thereafter, get a call from one of their staff people. He tells me that they're not trying to get rid of all of the, quote, vagrants, just the ones that they don't like. 
and that they seem unacceptable. And we learn that the BIA has these ongoing concerts and they want to clear the gazebo well in advance of the concert, but also they have a security guard there six days a week, multiple hours a day, who's been harassing people in the park. And this is what Neil is really resisting. So we went to the park and we talked to people and we learned that the security guard was banning people from the park and chasing people out of the park and kicking people awake and that people were scared and deeply harassed in the park. So we, in talking to a bunch of people in the park, but especially with Neil, decided that we were going to organize to get rid of the security guard. And the BIA was operating entirely illegal in having the guard there. On Neil's idea, we decided to make a poster, a Know Your Rights poster. Security guards have only the same legal rights as any other citizen. So we made this poster showing Homer Simpson and a picture of the security guard saying this guy has the same power as this guy. And it really leveled the security guard. It made the security guard sort of a joke in a lot of ways to the folks that were hanging out or living in the park. It made it so that they knew their rights, but they also, a lot of them would just be like, dope to the security guard or started laughing at the security guard and actively started resisting the security guard on their own. And the whole time we were putting pressure on the city to stop allowing the security guard to act illegally in the park. And from our perspective, there was nothing happening on the city end. We made a video that showed Neil's account of what was happening, as well as this one other woman's account. And we issued a press release. We issued threats to the BIA president of the board saying we're going to picket all of the board members' businesses. And then unexpectedly, we got a lot of media. And then that night, they publicly announced that they weren't going to have the security guard in the park anymore. It was a lot of work for a short period of time. But also it meant a really big difference to folks in the park. In their lives, they're policed all of the time. But that policing is transient. Police and parks ambassadors come in and out of the park. There's not someone that's stationed there continuously to target them. And it made a big deal in people's lives. What we learned later is that we had actually won the day before and it was unrelated to our media campaign or the video that we put out. And they just hadn't told us that we had won. That took us a while to sort of figure out because we always look at our organizing. It's like this happened, this happened, this happened, and then we won. And so all of those things meant that we won. And the biggest things that we did actually didn't contribute to our winning at all. It's really important that they happened because that's how the story came out and it sent a message, an important message to BIAs that they can't get away with privately policing public space. But we won by really putting the pressure on the city. It was our experience of it that they were doing nothing, but they were actually actively working to make us feel like they were doing nothing when they were behind the scenes freaking out about it. Now, in 2021, our public parks are full of private security. And the reason for that is because the city of Toronto has hired them to police people in encampments. So we had this incredible victory in 2017, and now the city is institutionalized, but we had fought against. That's what winning and losing in neoliberal times really means. 
You said earlier that one of the things you wanted to think through in writing this book was the relationship between what groups do and the experiences of the people who are hit the hardest by the issues in question. What did you learn in the course of writing the book about how that's worked for OCAP and its strengths and limitations, and about what lessons there are to learn from that? There's a few different things that I learned. I guess one of the biggest lessons, one of the most surprising lessons to me was how significant OCAP's name is. When OCAP wasn't particularly concerned about something, if OCAP's name was on something, city staff were really deeply concerned about it. And that the power of collective organizing when it's a well-known group that does direct action or when it's like OCAP that has that long-standing reputation can mean so much. In one set of direct action casework cases, there were two cases that were nearly identical. One case, the woman did direct action and publicly fought, and they scrambled to give her what we were fighting for slowly, but they like eventually couriered her a check. And I've never heard of welfare ever doing that for someone. And they, at different times, violated their own policies to give us what we were demanding. And in a nearly identical case, the woman's partner didn't have immigration status, and they knew that. And so they knew that she wasn't going to publicly do direct action, and they didn't do anything. And so for me, finding out how they were dealing with things behind the scenes through Freedom of Information Act requests was really enlightening because we just normally are like, they're doing something or they're not doing something, and we don't understand how or why they're doing it. But understanding that they're actually actively responding to the threat or actuality of direct action was really important to us. And that when poor folks are coming together with or through direct action or backed up with an organization that has a name that's viewed as a meaningful threat, I think it's really important to know. But that threat, it takes a long time to build, like that organization takes a long time to build. So that I think was one of the most significant lessons for me. And another one was like talking with Neil. No one had ever met him or talked to him before. And he called OCAP because he knew to call OCAP. And that having really deep roots in a community is just essential for organizing. And what sort of ensures the symbiotic relationship between community organizations that do meaningful work and members of the community who ultimately are going to become involved in that work. So from what you said earlier, a key thing for organizers in other communities who are taking up lessons from OCAP's model is just being really attentive to the circumstances where they are and not doing it in, as you said, a cookie cutter way. But how do you hope the book will be useful to people in other places as they do that? There are a lot of lessons that you just can't read from a press release. I'm a brilliant propagandist, and if you tell me what happened, I can just tell you how we won in a press release. But if you're reading that, you're maybe not catching the depth of what maybe we learned through that. So I think from the book, one of the most useful things is this categorization of demobilization tactics that I map out. And it's certainly not a complete mapping and some of them other people have identified before 
but how I take them and describe them, I think is really useful for others to be able to identify them and think differently about how to respond to what is actually happening to them as it's happening instead of reacting similarly to any kind of demobilization tactic. And as well, just the importance of building key relationships. I don't actually really get into it because the chapters are quite contained, but the importance of those key relationships, but also working with poor folks a lot of the time, those relationships aren't necessarily really long term. Some of them are, and that's really significant and important and lovely, but Neil vanished. He's unhoused, and that's the case with a lot of unhoused folks. But that relationship that we built in the time and that he was actively a part of the decision-making of the campaign was really important. And I think another key lesson that's coming out of the book, like my big lesson is to try and take the time and examine how we win things, because that can really impact how we fight. I know that that feels impossible for most people who are organizing, especially around homelessness when things are always a crisis and especially right now, it's a really big crisis. I talk a lot about epistemic violence, which is like violence around knowledge and how people's knowledge is delegitimized. And because of what I work through in the book and trace through how deeply our knowledge is delegitimized and have talked through that with a lot of people and where we hold our knowledge sort of all over the place. Since then, I've started this group called Fact Check Toronto, where we just fact check the city and it's a more quote unquote legitimate source that's using city data against the city to show that it's lying. And it's being used by the media sometimes to just challenge the city with its own data, recognizing that our word doesn't mean much. And people have found that really, really helpful. And I never would have imagined that that's something that I would do. But in taking the time to sort of think through what works and what we need, that's something that came out of it. And that might be really different for a different community. But for us right now with a city that has no qualms in lying all of the time, it is helpful. Do you want to give a quick final pitch for the book before we go? This book has a lot of theory in it, and it expresses that theory really accessibly. And I work to tell stories of organizing in a day-to-day way that captures the realities of organizing in a way that can be extracted and folks can think through organizing and also homelessness policy and hopefully really push the struggle forward. You have been listening to my interview with A.J. Withers, longtime anti-poverty organizer and author of Fight to Win, Inside Poor People's Organizing. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.